When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. A big shout out to all the Patreon supporters. You guys are the best. Uh, and the Anchor supporters. All you guys. Everyone supporting the show, sharing, liking, all that stuff's huge. If you guys like this, leave me a, a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That would be huge. Please go and do that. Today, I have another special guest, one of the most special it's so hard because I have so many awesome guests, but this dude is the man. I love this guy. I have Dr. Paul Gould coming on. We're going to be talking about meaning. And uh, Paul Gould, if you don't know, uh, you need to know, he is the he is an associate professor of philosophy of religion, and he's the director of the MA Philosophy of Religion program at Palm Beach Atlantic University. Uh, he's a personal friend and mentor, all around awesome dude. Uh, let's just Let's just pull him on in here. Paul, thanks so much for, for coming back on the podcast, man. You're welcome. Good to be here, Parker, as always. Dude, I don't know. This podcast wouldn't happen without you, actually. So this is huge. If if this is a good thing, then you guys can thank Paul for it. If it, if you don't like this, you can blame him for it. It's it's all his fault. Well, like I was telling you, you've this has quickly rocketed to one of my favorites because of all the incredible guests you're having on. So way to go, man. Yeah. Thanks, man. Yeah. It's been awesome. So, so today, last time I had you on, we talked about uh, Christian Platonism, and, and we went in deep. Today, we're going to be talking about meaning, and the the former podcast was going into more your academic work. This is a little bit more of, of your popular level work, and I hesitate to say that because it's it's popular, but it's not like popularizing. And that's something I really appreciate about you is you have footnotes even in your more popular works, which. Are you going to have footnotes in this book? Yeah, there's plenty. Yes. <laughs> I don't know why people do that. Like, oh, let's do endnotes. That's the worst thing in the world. Well, well, I, well I would hope they're footnotes. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got it. So now if, if your editor uh, is watching this, footnotes, please. But uh, we're going to be talking about meaning. And this is coming from a chapter in, in a book that you're working on. Is that right? That's right. Can you talk yeah. about that book at all or no? Yeah, yeah. No, I can okay. talk about it. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about it. Uh, so as you know, Parker, I wrote this book called cultural apologetics where where I was really wrestling with this question you know as a christian as someone who cares deeply about truth and goodness and beauty how do we sh- how do we help those in culture um, basically see that the christian story is true and satisfying and so i wrote this book called cultural apologetics and then in that book um, i kind of make this argument or give this model for how we can join with god and each other to to you know more hopefully reenchant the world this is kind of my proposal and part of that i kind of give like this two step Thing that we can do, sort of some practical steps. And one is um, to awaken longing. So, you know, we live in this disenchanted world. And so the idea is we've got to sort of shock people into engagement with reality yeah. by reawakening longing. And then the step two was, I called it returning to reality. But what I meant by that and how I described it 
And I'm thinking of this wonderful passage in Dallas Willard's chapter three of the divine conspiracy, which that chapter is worth like the whole book. Yeah. The whole book's great, but that chapter is there's some brilliant things where he basically says, if we're going to be have any hope of like, um, you know, being a faith, faithful follower or presenting the, the claims of Christ to others, we've got to see the world the way Jesus does. And so mm. my claim was that we return to reality by doing two things. Number one, um, we learn to see and delight in the world the way Jesus does. And then number two, we invite others to see and delight in the world the way Jesus does. And so those two ideas are two future books. Yeah. One is for Christians. How do we learn to see and delight in the world the way Jesus does? And then the book I'm working on now is the one for non-believers. Um, how can we invite others to see and delight in uh, the world the way Jesus does so that they can see that Christianity is reasonable and plausible. So the tentative title of the book is yeah. called 11 Stones. And the metaphor is, uh, you know, that of a journey or a hike to, you know, our true end. Um, and then as you, you know, anybody who's hiked in Colorado or something, you think about how they have the cairns, these stones that are stacked up on each other. And so I'm looking at 11 features of the world that are clues and then stacking them on top of each other to help people discover that true story of the world. So it's tentatively, that's the tentative title. And, and I'm basically in the middle of it. So yeah. we're finished the chapter this morning on meaning. Dude. So, uh, that's what we're talking about today. Yeah. Congrats, man. That's awesome. Why, um, why 11 stones? I always forget how many stones. I always think it's seven for some reason, but it's 11. Is there a particular reason why there's 11? Um, no, there's no, there's no, I just, just picked 11 things I'm interested in writing okay. on. And, uh, and then my wife said it couldn't be 10 or it couldn't be an even number because my wife who's a writer said it needs to be odd for some reason. That's better than even. She so knows the inside. Yeah. We went yeah. for 11. That's awesome. Well, uh, so today while well, I'm pulling from a, a talk you gave at, at MIT, uh, their crew out there and, uh, that's anyone watching on YouTube will be kind of confused why our background is, uh, the Joker. But it's from from the movie The Joker. Uh, this is this is Arthur Fleck, and you started off your talk with uh, this example of Arthur Fleck. Can you do you have that on on the top of your your head there? Can you tell us about Arthur Fleck? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just I, I think I started off the talk. Well, I know I did because it's how I start off the chapter <laughs> with the claim that Arthur Fleck has no name. And obviously that sounds like I just said, this English sentence has three words, you know, self, it sounds like I'm embroiled in self-refutation. Yeah. But, um, but what I'm after is, and, and if you watch the movie, of mm -hmm. course, um, is that what I meant was that Arthur Fleck lacked an identity. He lacked a place to stand. He lacked, um, you know, a story in which to find his meaning and his purpose. And so if you watch the movie, I mean, there's this powerful I forget if it was reading his journal or whatever, but, you know, he was this moment where Arthur Fleck there, the character, um, you know, he, he's reading this journal where he says, maybe in my death, my life will make sense. And yeah. it's such a powerful, like, and he meant, he's spelled it C-E-N-T-S, but yeah. you know, he meant, but in the story, but in the movie, the Joker, um, you know, you have this, this, um, this person, Arthur Fleck, but he, he has no name, right? He has no identity and he's, he's, he longs to be a com comedian, but unfortunately his, um, you know, he, his jokes are too tragic, too, yeah. mor too morbid. Um, and then he has this laughing disorder. Whenever he's in pain, he laughs. Whenever he laughs, he's in pain. And so really for, for Arthur Fleck, like life was tragedy uh, and it was all tragic, um, except he found work for time, at least as a clown. And so he was able to be this nameless persona. And in that nameless, faceless sort of space, he was seeking to carve out this meaning. And then again, I don't want to give the spoiler alert, yeah. but some things happened where he eventually was named by the citizens of Gotham. And, you know, there's a story where 
at the end of the movie, uh, Arthur Fleck no longer exists. And in his place, the Joker has come to, you know, this is his true name. Um, and so so the movie just sort of awakens and, and I think forces us to struggle with these questions of meaning, purpose, identity. And, uh, you know, even the question, is, is it tragedy all the way down? Yeah. Or is there any comedy, you know, to be had in the world? And yeah. how do we make sense of it all? So. Yeah, dude, that's huge. And and for someone who wrote a book called Cultural Apologetics, it makes a lot of sense that you would be pulling stuff from the culture like this. At first, I I, I forgot. I was like, dude, he's talking about the Joker. What is going on? But it, it makes total sense because yeah. you're finding that that longing in society. This is what, if Christianity is true, then we ought to find this longing places, and it should show up in places like Joker and stuff like that. So I thought that was that was really interesting, but also. Um, you said that the Joker story highlights the the human predicament, mm-hmm. and I think you're right. Can you explain like like what is that human predicament that's highlighted by the movie? Yeah, I mean the way that I the way that I explained it in that the talk that I did was I, I gave a kind of pithy way to understand the human predicament is just mm-hmm. the um, the human quest to find a story that's true yeah. and satisfying. But it's but even a little broader. It's just that we come into this world and we 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 don't know our place, right? We have, we have these longings and we have, we have a world and we seek a fit between desire and world. Mm -hmm. That's the human predicament. You know, is there a story that understands us? Is there a story that's alive? Is there a story that, that fits the, the deep human longings of the human heart? And so that's, that's the, that's the predicament that we find ourselves in um, that I think that movie wrestled so well with. Man, I love that. I love that, that story motif. I think it's, it's kind of, I think it's become a little bit more popular with like, this, this idea of postmodernism and we need to tell stories and, and you get some backlash and people say, you know, that's, it's postmodern to, to go into stories then. But I think you're right. I think it's rediscovering this ancient truth that we've all kind of know anyways, intuitively, but exactly what you said, you wake up in the world and you snap into consciousness at like four or five. I mean, I don't have any memories before then. And you just kind of take the story that's given to you. And then suddenly Someday it either doesn't make sense with reality or you find that it does make sense with reality. And when you have that dissonance, you start looking for a different story to live in. I think that's so huge. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It was just uh, right before with you, I I just was on another Zoom you know, time sharing about um, a th- basically a theology of story. Mm. And, you know, so interesting as you catalog different th- philosophers. So, for example, Al- Alistair McIntyre and After Virtue's famous chapter, yep. you know, you can he basically says things like, you know, in, in order to understand how you ought to act, you have to first understand of which story you are the hero. Yes. Or you go back to Hannah Arendt. She says something not about how we ought to act, but our identity itself. She says, you know, if we if, if we have any hope in understanding who we are, you know, we have to first understand what story we find ourselves a part of. And so, you know, the idea that um, sociologists, philosophers, historians, psychologists are, are all noting is this very sort of simple idea that we are narratival animals. And so, yeah. you know, we're story listening animals, we're storytelling animals, we're story making animals. We live in on stories. Um, and then I think if we, you know, put our theological cap on this, I mean, in, in many ways, it's uh, stories and this is why I'm so interested in them and why I, I start the chapter in, the, in that talk with the Joker is that I think stories are reaching toward theological understanding, right? I mean, they're reaching toward like these primordial beginnings of our own life, of the human species, uh, of the universe itself. Uh, they're reaching toward this idea of pilgrim's quest, you know, that we're all on this journey to discover that true story of the world. And then, of course, they reach toward this idea of, um, you know, the end of all things, when all yeah. things will be made right again. And so they're so critical, um, I think 
because that's how God has made us. So. Yeah. Amen, man. And and that's, it's so crazy. Uh, thinking about being on, on the bus with someone or on a train and you could be sitting next to someone who lives in a different, completely different story than you. And to them, they're, they're, they're thinking that they live in this tragedy and maybe they do, maybe their life has been just trashed right. so far. Right. But you're both in this objective reality and yet your subjective experience is so different based on how you're characterizing the story. I love stories and narrative because I study with uh, Van Hooser so much and that's, yeah. you know, theo drama right. always, but that's um, right. <laughs> which the, getting, getting back into to your talk and, and the way you're setting up this chapter uh, as a good philosopher does, you define meaning and you talk about the meaning of meaning and, and you kind of characterize it in two different ways, at least uh, the meaning of life and then meaning in life. Can you explain that for us? Yeah. I mean, so it's really interesting. One of the, you know, the joys of writing a book like this, well, joys and tribulations of writing a book like this is you've got to enter into the massive literature on each topic, you know, because I'm looking at 11 features of the world. So I entered, um, you know, for a good bit of time into the the literature on um, the philosophy of meaning. And as it turns out, there's all these distinctions and there's all these uses. And even the question, what is the meaning of meaning or the meaning of life? Uh, You know, for many people, for many philosophers, well, even the, the the various uses of meaning uh, kind of reveal that there's this vagueness problem. Yeah. And so sometimes people talk about meaning of life as a sort of cluster concept where you, you know, you, you have a certain amount of valuable ends and that's, that's meaning. And others say, no, there's this one single way that single way to understand meaning. But I think, um, oh, so your question with the distinction uh, between the meaning of life and the meaning in life, this is one of those key distinctions in the literature that, that is kind of helpful. And the, the distinction is just as it sounds, uh, meaning of life is, you know, seeking a question, seeking an answer to the question, you know, how do we make sense of it all from the widest perspective possible, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's the, the meaning of human existence or the meaning of the universe itself. And then you contrast that with meaning in life, which is a more subjective question. How do we find meaning uh, within our own individual lives? Mm-hmm. And, and so those are, those are distinct questions that are conceptually connected. I think that, um, it matters if there's no meaning of life, what kinds of meanings we can find in life, but they are conceptually distinct. And that's helpful. You know, JP Moreland, one of the first things he taught us back in my old master's days, that if we want to be good thinkers, we need to learn to make distinctions. And if we want to teach, be good teachers, we need to learn to teach distinctions. And so it's helpful to have that distinction before us uh, as we proceed. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. That's really helpful actually too. Uh, Sometimes I hear physicists talking about um, theories of everything and that's kind of that broadest scale and they're looking they're, and they're trying to find meaning and they're trying to do it by ballooning up their own discipline i think far beyond uh where they should but mm-hmm. uh but yeah that that meaning of life in the objective sense would still miss out on the subjective meaning in life making sense of your life within this broader meaning i think uh someone who does this really well is thomas nagel in uh the view from nowhere and that blew my mind i read that when you were here at ted's mm-hmm. and he he said mm-hmm. something like there's more to a there's more to reality than objective reality, and I was like, no, dude, don't say this. And he was yeah. like, there's there's all these pockets of subjective reality. So even if you had all the objective facts, you would miss the subjective. And mm-hmm. it seems like that's what this distinction is drawing out. Is that right? That fair? Yeah, I think that's a helpful way to do it. And, and Nagel has some interesting things to say about you know the the connection between the two. But um, yeah, I mean, it could be that there's no as you use the phrase objective meaning or answer to that question related to the meaning of life, that still doesn't mean that there's not a subjective landscape uh, of meaning, you know, and for better or worse, I I think it's pretty undeniable that people think they live meaningful lives, you know, so it certainly seems like there's that. Um, 
now we'll have to connect that to the other question of objective meaning, but yeah, yeah, that, that's a helpful distinction. Just, just really quick, uh, it popped up. Do you think it's possible for someone to live, to truly live out um, the belief that there is no meaning? Do you think that's possible or is everyone, even if you say that going to be uh, tacitly living out a meaningful life in their own eyes? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, is it possible? I mean, to be maximally consistent. <laughs> right, right. Yes. But okay. um, I think, that, but then I immediately started to catalog um, in my mind. So like, uh, what's the guy? Um, Stephen Jay Gould, yeah. you know, the, the, the great paleontologist who for years writes about how there's no teleology in the world. And then they get together at his funeral and they celebrate the teleology of his world. So of his life. And so, yeah. um, you know, the purpose of his life. And so, um do, do we often live with that inconsistency? Even you see this in Dawkins, uh, you know, crying out loud, he, you know, he's very clear in the God delusion, there's no purpose. Right. Uh, but yet he says things like we ought to live as if there's purpose. But I, I kind of like the old fashioned atheist, like Bertrand Russell. He's yeah. my favorite old fashioned atheist. Right. Um, you know, in his essay, he wrote his book, you know, why I'm not a Christian might've been like the God delusion of the 1920s uh, or fifties when he wrote that. But, um, but, you know, he says in his chapter on a free man's worship, he says, look, if we're just the accidental co-location of atoms, all we can do is build our lives on the firm foundation of unyielding despair. Yeah. And I think that that's the more consistent atheism. Now, whether or not Russell himself, if you read his own biography, he certainly lived a kind of wild life and maybe yeah. wasn't the nicest person. He seemed to find meaning in pleasure at times and in seeking truth at times. And so in that sense, even Russell, the arch consistent, yeah. at least, you know, in some of his moods, um, mm -hmm. philosopher lived a life that betrayed that. Right. Yeah. So yeah. he tells us there's no fit between world and desire yet. He's, you know, um, he, he doesn't stop seeking to satisfy those deep longings of the heart. Yeah. I really mm -hmm. like that. I, I, I don't want to push it too far, but I think there is some kind of like performative inconsistency in saying there's no meaning and then continuing to live, but I, I don't want to be like unfair to people's psychology or anything, but yeah. just, just randomly popped it's up. It's a great question. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Um, so that brings us to this, the, the meaning triad. Uh, there's a meaning triad and then there are six things that we long for. And I think, are you characterizing that as the existential uh, set? Is that? No. So, okay. Um, okay. So yeah. Uh, the meaning triad is uh, a helpful way that I found um, in a book by Joshua Seacris and mm -hmm. Stuart Getz on, they have a great little book that they wrote that just came out, I think in 2020 called, what is this thing called the meaning of life? Oh, and in, the, in it, they do a great survey of the debates in the Academy. So if you want to, if you want a quick, like, okay, here's the kind of state of play, I, I would highly recommend their book. Okay. But what he does, what they do in that book very helpfully is they say, look, there's all these, you know, meaning is this cluster concept. There's all these different senses, but here's the three basic senses that, that they all kind of coalesce around. And so they call it the meaning triad. And those three basic senses are purpose, uh, significance, and intelligibility, or what they call sense making. And you see that, like, you know, you give examples, for example, um, you know, you might say something like, what do you mean when you look at me that way? And, and, mm -hmm. and the idea is like, what's the purpose of that look? You know, wh why are you looking at me that way? Mm -hmm. What do you mean? Or, or, you know, so that's the idea of purpose. Or you might, you might say something like, you know, you mean nothing to me. You're dead to me. Um, you know, what they mean there is you, you, you are of no value. You don't matter to me. So there's the mattering or the value. Um, and then or you might say something like, um, <clears throat> you know, what do you mean when you say I look like a clown? And, and the idea is like, uh, help me make sense of that claim. 
And there's that sense making. And so those are, so I, I love, I think that was a helpful, like this meaning triad. I think that's kind of a cluster concept. Now, uh, Joshua Seacrest has this other article that he wrote in 2009 in Philo. Um, I forget the, type, the name of the title, but he talks about the narratival ending and the importance of narratival endings for meaning. Hmm. There, if I understand him correctly, he is at least suggesting, he might not claim it in this article, but like there's this question of those three, is there any one that's fundamental yeah. or are they all just kind of three stools on, on a thing? My own thinking and kind of how I took the chapter that I wrote is I, I think there is one that's fundamental. And I oh, think it's a sense-making idea. And I think you can you can put the sense-making one as the thing that we're actually all after. Is that the it's intelligibility? Sense- intelligibility, yeah. Okay. Making sense of it, making sense of it all, like from the widest hmm. frame possible. Because in doing that, I think we locate our purpose, our identity, our meaning, and so on. So that's the meaning triad. And then you asked about the the six. You yeah, always... you added there's there's three more that, that you dropped in there, I think. Okay. So um yeah, so so anyway, I was just doing some conceptual setting up there, and that's where the meaning triad came up on. And then yeah. what I do in the talk and what I did in the what I'm gonna do in this chapter that I wrote is um, I identify on the human side of the ledger. Remember, we've got the world and we've got our desires. Yeah. We want to find a fit between the world and desire. At least we're hopeful at first that there is the possibility of fit. And so I wanted to I wanted to explain a little bit more about the human side. And so what I did is I just picked six uh, deep longings of the human heart. They're not the only longings of the human heart, and they're not all, the only deep longings of the human heart, but I picked six that are, I think, most central to the question of meaning. And I... I I'm going to just call it the existential set, you know? So here's the existential set things that we all long for that are deep in the, in the human heart that we long, that we hope there's a story that satisfies and and that they are very simply purpose, value, and significance. So there's the three from the triad. And then I just add, um, Da, da, da. What do I? Oh, well, actually, okay. Purpose, value, significance, intelligibility, mm-hmm. and then I add in. I add identity that we all are longing for our true name. Like we want to discover our true name. Um, we can come back to that if you want. And then six. The sixth one would be transcendence. That, yeah. uh, that I think deep within the human heart, we long for a story that's greater than ourselves. Um, one, that's one way you could describe it. Another way you could describe it is that we long to live forever, yeah. right? People yeah. don't want to die. Uh, and then maybe the most common way to describe that longing for transcendence is our longing for God. So I think that's all embedded within that sixth one. So that's the, that's what I'm going to call the existential set. And then I want to explore, which I think we're going to do here. Is there any story that, that satisfies all six of those, yeah. you know? Most, yeah. most fully. Well, dude, so so many things to, to jump on there. So, like, I've I uh, as you know, I, I really like John Frame and Vern Poitras and their triperspectival model. And so, when I see that triad, I'm like, my light, my eyes light up. Yeah. What, Trinity everywhere, aren't you? Yeah, that's right. Always, man. Yeah. What's so funny? Uh, what's what's interesting about what you just said is uh, there's this ancient problem of that you know the the problem of the one and the many, and I, it's been kind of my goal to find it in modern philosophy as well. So we don't just, oh, that was just those armchair philosophers, you know, talking about is everything made of water or not. But I think it still pops up and it, it sounds like it pops up in this meaning conversation. You talk about uh, there's some who see it as, I, I forgot the language already, but like a cluster, right? There's a cluster mm-hmm. view. And then the other view is like a monist view, I would say, but like there's yeah. one, right? There's, yeah. And, and so it, it pops up again. And right. it's interesting, you, you would fit more into, I guess kind of the monist camp of saying it, it all can be at least couched in or most fundamentally in intelligibility. Does that sound right? I think that's where, I think that's where I, I'm headed. Yeah. yeah. That I think that um, there's one basic 
thing that we're after, the yeah. true story of the world. And I, actually, I would want to say it this way, the true and satisfying story of the world. And in finding, if there is such a story that's tr- not just true, but satisfying, uh, in finding that, we find all that stuff that we long for, all the yeah. cluster concepts. Uh, and some of those cluster concepts would be like the six, you know, yeah. the more detailed things. Right. Yeah. I'm yeah. I love that. Well, and, and a lot of uh, my philosopher friends, yourself included, want to uh, disabuse me of my, my Vantillianism, which I'm open to, but intelligibility is like all the Vantill always harped on. So we're coming back and I love that idea of intelligibility and, and things fitting in there. Even if I have to let mm-hmm. go of my triperspectivalism, cause we have one, I still get to hold on to the Vantill stuff cause we got intelligibility and that's great. Uh, some people will not even know what I'm talking about. That's okay. Uh, so th- this idea that uh, of satisfiability or being being satisfying as well as true is interesting to me because I hear this in, in mathematics a lot. Um, when I do listen to mathematic talks, they talk about beauty being a, an, a guide for different theories. And for me, I'm like, yeah, dude, I think the true, good and beautiful go together. But I'm always so confused that non-Christians would find that. Like, why should beauty be another uh, factor? Why should I can imagine people saying, why should satisfyingness uh be a, a category for couldn't the, the the story be true and then totally unsatisfying yeah um can you just motivate that for us yeah yeah so again um absolutely so so what i think every human heart longs for is a true story that's fully satisfying uh-huh. it could turn out that the world is um, you know, we have all these itches, but they're unscratchable. This yeah. is how um, Alex Rosenberg would put it, right? You know, we have all these itches that the, the world just can't satisfy. Mm-hmm. If you can't handle that, uh, take Prozac, you know, yeah. or whatever. Take a yeah. drug, take drugs. Right. Yeah, and so that that definitely could be it. So, so we care deeply about truth, yeah. right? I mean, we don't want to. Um, we don't want to believe anything if it's false, right? That's just, right. that's not good. That's not, that's not how we ought to proceed. Um, but wouldn't it be great if it was true and satisfying? At least I think that's deep within the human heart, this hope. And so what I'm going to do is flip in this chapter, you know, there's other chapters where we're exploring the more empirical evidence from the world and discovering right. that, you know, truths about the origin question. And now we're doing quest. Um, I'm flipping to the human side of the ledger and saying, what can we learn about the true story of the world um, by asking the question of all the possible stories out there, is there one that fits the tightest, like lock and key with the deep longings of the heart? And that might be a clue yeah. to which map is the, the map that helps us discover, you know, that which the heart longs for. Yeah. Dude. home And things like that. That's good. Yeah. That's good. Thanks. Thanks for motivating that. that I really like that. Uh, and then just before we go on to these other stories here, uh, the transcendence one, is another one. Uh, Owen Anderson uh, has been on the podcast a lot. He's a, a, another philosopher, and he talks about this longing for transcendence. And I often hear atheists uh, on on YouTube, or whatever, saying, "Why? Why would I? I don't want to live forever. That would be so boring. That'd be terrible." Or, or uh, now there's this new idea of uploading your consciousness into a little drive, right? And and people mm-hmm. are like, "No, that would be so boring." Or uh, in the good life, um, spoilers, but they get to well. In in the good place, whatever in heaven, the good place, uh, everyone turned their their minds turned to mush because they just get all of their. There's no more strife. There's no more struggle, and there's no more growth. Um, can you help motivate that one as well for someone who would think I don't want to live forever? I don't. I don't actually want transcendence. I think that they still do. You you listed a couple different uh, facets of that of that uh, mm-hmm. transcendence. What would you say to someone who says I actually don't want to live forever? 
I don't, I don't like transcendence. Yeah. I mean, I think we have competing intuitions okay. um, and actually Joshua Seacrest notes this. We have, in fact, maybe I'll, I don't know if I'm going to be able to find it on yeah. the spot, but um, yeah, but he, he talks about these, these competing intuitions. One would be this intuition to last forever. So that's one intuition okay. that I think people, if they intuit, they see that in their heart. The other one um, is, is like this competing intuition. Uh, and, and so on that first intuition, Life is only valuable or matters if you last forever. And then you have this other intuition that says, no, no, no. Life only is valuable because it's so scarce. That yeah. I think he calls it the scarcity intuition. Um, it's, the, it's the very fact that life is so short that life is incredibly valuable. So you have those competing intuitions that are at play. And then to your question, you have, you have this objection that's, that uh, some have put forth where eternal life sounds incredibly boring. Like, why would mm. I want to do that? And you articulated that well. Um, and I guess I, I guess I would say it all depends what eternal life is, you know, and what it amounts to. Like, yeah. if it's just, um, I don't know, sitting around playing a harp all day, well, maybe that doesn't seem so exciting. Right. Um, and so I think we just have to do, so then, but then we're asking a, 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 either a speculative question philosophically, or in our case, a theological question about the nature of the afterlife. And, and what does it really look like to live in this heaven and earth that's renewed yeah. by God. And there's all these questions about what that could look like. Um, but one thing that I think we can know, at least theologically, is it's not going to be boring. And perhaps we get to take the best of this world and this culture with us into that world. And perhaps the laws of nature will change. Perhaps they won't. There's a sort of an interesting debate there. I yeah. kind of think they will. I can give you reasons why, um, or not, if you'd like, but I don't know. Yeah. You know? And so all of that's um, embedded in this. And of course, if we have everlasting relationships, why would we not want those too? Yeah. And I guess the last thing I just want to say um, is just to point to someone like Luke Ferry, who is a French atheist philosopher who wrote a book called A Brief History of Thought. And he said, so he, he doesn't think Christianity is true, but he wants it to be true. Uh-huh. And the primary reason he doesn't think it's true is because of the problem of evil. And the primary reason he wants it to be true is so he can spend eternity with his loved ones. Who mm-hmm. wouldn't want that, right? I guess yeah. that's, um, that's briefly what I would say. Man, that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really like that. Th- thanks again, man. I put you on the spot on that one, but yeah, no, that, no, was, that was so great. These are, these are open questions I have that I, I look forward to looking into the literature. Like there is that question, the threat of a, a boring life. Afterlife. Yeah. I mean, that's a real question, but I think it's not like Christian philosophers and theologians haven't been thinking about that. And right. I just, you know, I don't, I don't, I'd be curious to know what they say too. Yeah. And I think, I think you're right. Uh, it, a lot of the, those intuitions against uh, wanting to live forever, I think they come from, caricature versions of christianity like uh like simpsons views like you said playing the harp that's what we always think of mm-hmm. and it'd be so boring and it's like well if god made alligator snapping turtles and all sorts of frogs and critters and uh and bees you're you're get your own right. apiarist thing going on like, for bee farm. Yeah, that's right man if if god made all that cool stuff that we like that we enjoy in, in the earth then that's the god who wouldn't make a boring after like he knows he's not gonna yeah that's so that's good. I, I like that too. And that, that does bring in some more theological debates and stuff. Um, so, so you continuing on with the meaning conversation, you said the quest for meaning is the quest to find our place in the universe. And that fits back what we're talking about with stories. And then you, you list four possible uh, stories or maps for, for mapping the world, absurdism, nice uh, nihilism, which I'm really interested in, enchanted naturalism, and then enchanted supernaturalism. I wonder, uh, we probably spend most of our time in the, the fourth one there, but can you give us a, a sketch of the first three? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So in the talk and then in the chapter, I'm going to, I'm, I'm boiling down um, the quest for meaning uh, mm-hmm. 
I, I describe it as a quest to find our place in the universe. And I, I do it that way for a couple of reasons. One is I, I want people to see that the question is first a cosmological question, right? It's yeah. a question about the kind of world we actually find ourselves in. So it's even metaphysical. Hmm. Um, and then also I, 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 so there's the, you know, the quest to find our place in the universe. And the other thing that, that, that is important to point out in that definition is I want to distinguish between space and place. You know, space is this idea that we're to extended beings who, who exist at a place, spatio-temporal location, perhaps. But place is much richer. Place is this idea that, we, that, you know, place is that where we belong and where we're known and we know and where we're loved and we love and where we are valued and we value and where we, where we, where we have our true name, where we discover our true name and we discover that true story of the world. So it's a very rich concept. Hmm. And so that's what I'm tapping into. And then in the chapter or in that talk, I just say, well, here's four possible worlds, maps, stories of the way the world is, and let's test them in terms of fit. Yeah. Right. So the first three, um, absurdism, is the first one, and I interact a little bit with Sartre, and I and his actually is is wonderful uh, work of fiction, nausea, mm-hmm. um, and just the idea of absurdism is very simply God doesn't exist and there's no meaning whatsoever in the world, and so it's tragedy all the way down. Yeah. Um, and then I give some reasons why uh, we should reject that. The second view I call nice nihilism. Can I jump? Can I jump? Oh, yeah. Is, is that, um, I think Sartre is usually characterized as an existentialist. Is that, is. That's right. so, so is he, is he saying, well, maybe his views change too, and maybe it's kind of hard to pin him down, but in, is absurdism saying life is meaningless. So, so make your own meaning kind of existentialism, or is it just, it's, it's absurd. Don't even try to figure it out. Yeah. So, okay, good. He is an existentialist, uh, existentialist. Um, and for, for, so like Sartre and Camus were a little, little different on this, yeah. both the French uh, existentialist for Sartre. My understanding is that there is no God and there, therefore there is no meaning and life is absurd. Okay. But Camus is slightly different. There is no God and there's no meaning, but we can still, you know, seek to live as if there is meaning or something like that. And so if you read nausea, for example, I mean, it's, it is a tragic, it's a, it's, it's a tragedy, right? It's a, it's a novel in that way. Um, but he ends up saying things like this, you know, the main hero of that story, you know, fashions himself early on as an adventurer, but then he starts asking questions like, but wait, where did all my adventures lead me? And he basically concludes, you know, they left, they led me nowhere. Hmm. And in fact, at a poignant place in the, the story, he basically says, I want to leave here, this cafe that he was sitting in, but I have no place that I belong, uh-huh. right? So there, there is no place for you in the universe. There is no story that understands you. There is no satisfaction of anything in the existential set. Um, so all yeah. is absurd. And there, the phenomenology of life is that of nauseous, you know? Mm-hmm. And so yeah. that, that's Sartre. Um, and that's, so I, I dub it absurdism. I don't yeah. know, if, you know, if that's a name out there, that's just what I'm going to call it. No, and I think that's a really helpful distinction between Camus, who that Camus seems more like the classical existentialist, you'd think, you know, just dragging yourself up, doesn't matter, but I'm going to carve up my own slice of of meaning here. Yeah. And even just really quick to say at the end, though, even at the end of um, Nausea, the hero of the story, even when he concludes that there is no meaning and his life is without purpose. Yeah. This is what's the absurdity of it. So what does he do? He um, he purposes to write a novel that will have real adventure in it. Yeah. It's like, you know, so um, that's where he leaves it. So, he, and it's kind of this like hope 
<clears throat> you know? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. We have adventure. Maybe we can write about adventure. Yeah. But I think Sark's ultimate point is that this is absurd. Life is absurd. That's so interesting. Yeah, and that's what Sark did, right? He wrote the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay, so that's absurdism. Sorry. So then we got nice nihilism, which is really yeah. intriguing. Sounding. Okay, so nice nihilism. Um, I, I give this name. Uh, so I'm basically bringing journey mates with me in this book you know so i've got i'm inviting four philosophers to join me in this chapter two french and two american so the first one was Sartre. the first american and the two americans are from duke uh, modern day philosophers the first one is alex rosenberg who is at duke uh, the chair of the philosophy department at duke right now and he wrote this book in 2011 called the atheist guide to reality Um, and in there he basically says there is no god there is no meaning there is no purpose he even has this line farewell to the purpose-driven life um, and then he says uh, about morality, though, he says, but guess what? Evolution is selected for, um, you know, kind of nice morality. Mm. And so it's, it's, it's a nice nihilism. Now, he's talking about morality. Yeah. But I'm going to borrow that phrase because I think he all, I think we can use it for his discussion of what um, the meaning is as well. It's a kind of nice nihilism yeah. where he says things like this. Hey, farewell to the purpose driven life. Mm-hmm. But if we're going to be scientific, we should be Epicurean. We should enjoy life. So life isn't tragedy. Actually, it's all comedy. Just enjoy it. And then he says, if you can't enjoy it, well, guess what? Science has a prescription for you too. Yeah. Take Prozac. Yeah. To which I say, forget Prozac, get the good stuff. You know, like, why stop there? Right. But the point is, and then there's all these really interesting, there's this this wonderful essay um, in The Guardian in 2019 by this this uh, freelance writer called, where she, the title of the, the essay was Sunny Nihilism. Mm. She says, the minute I realized there's no meaning to life, um, suddenly this weight was lifted. Mm. And she talks about how the Gen Y and Gen Z, they have this totally different perspective toward nihilism like if the if the older generation was like oh no the life there's no meaning in life you know stick your head in the sand all sad the new generation is like there's no meaning let's party you know and so like you know and they give examples of like let's do tide pod challenges or let's tell celebrities to run us over with their truck or hit us in the face or you know just weird things super weird Um, so i'm calling that nice nihilism like hey there's no god there's no purpose but let's have a good time yeah that's Well, do do you think that that's do you think that that's right? That sunny uh, uh, nihilism, nihilism. Do you think that people, the the next generations, like, dude, I'm a millennial, and I used to hate millennials. I really like millennials now because we're starting to. A lot of them are really good. Uh-huh. Um, they're really good in their field, man. I like a lot of these dudes who I've had on my podcast, and I'm starting to enjoy the the generation more. But I gotta admit, the Gen Z seem kind of crazy, and that's why I went. That's that's my ministry. I love these folks, but they're still mm-hmm. nuts. Do you think they're actually like living out this this nihilism? Is that why they're eating Tide Pods, or is it? What do you, What do you think of that uh, characterization there? Uh, I mean, I don't know how widespread it is. It was certainly yeah. interesting in the essay. Um, I mean, I did not know about people. I guess you can go on Twitter and, or maybe Instagram and find this. Uh, you know, people they're on TikTok now. Gen Y or Gen Z are saying, you know, yeah. you know, oh Miley Cyrus, run me over with your uh, with your truck or what your car. I'd love it if you hit me, Taylor Swift. You know, that'd be so great. Like these are kind of weird things, but yeah. I guess the idea is that um, life, you know, let's, we're here, let's party. And yeah. uh, I don't know how widespread that is, but I okay. found it certainly provocative. And, and I guess to self-report, you know, if there is no God and there is no meaning, I would rather embrace nice nihilism, uh, yeah. absurd, you know, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. why not enjoy yourself if there is no God and no meaning to life? Yeah. Oh, that's so, that's so interesting. Um, it's talking. We, we we talked earlier about um, truth and significance, and 
Yeah, it seems like they're, they're the emphasis on different things. So let's let's emphasize on significance. That's kind of what we talked about too about uh, the the new atheism versus old atheism. And the old, we would say Christians always say we like the old better because they seem more honest to us. They grab the truth side and they said holding this true means there's no significance. So this all stinks. And then the newer folks, and this is what sounds like the characterization of Gen Y and Z is that we'll grab the significance and who knows what's true, who cares, whatever. Uh, it's it's hard to figure out. It's Maybe it's impossible to figure out, so I'm going to grab the significance and, and pull myself up by that. Mm-hmm. So so then we get to enchanted naturalism, which I'm, uh, again, super curious to hear what this is. Yeah, so the third view is a, another uh, Duke American uh, philosopher named Owen Flanagan, and he wrote a book, uh, recently called The Really Hard Problem. So I know you yeah. know a little philosophy of mine, Parker. Yeah. Um, you know, about the hard problem of consciousness. Well, you know, Owen Flanagan is a philosopher of mine, but he wrote another book called The Really Hard Problem. And the subtitle is Finding Meaning in a Materialistic World. Hmm. He thinks that's a really hard problem given atheism and naturalism. Yeah. What I find so interesting, though, about Flanagan, again, a colleague of... Um, Rosenberg yeah. is that he he disagrees with Rosenberg on a whole host of things. Um, you know, Alex Rosenberg, this book, The Atheist Guide to Reality, is sort of interesting where he says these things like there is no self, there is no I that wants because naturalism is true and you, you only have the little atoms, you know. Right. Um, there's no intentionality, there's no you know phenomenal consciousness, there's no um any, any you know, so there's no longings that could be satisfied and so on. Flanagan's like, no, we you can get selves, you can get minds, you can get mental causation, you can get phenomenal consciousness, you can get all these things. You can get he can even get teleology in a godless world. So he's way more optimistic. Sometimes um in the literature they'll talk about pessimistic naturalists and optimistic naturalists. Yeah. Well, these would be your two views, right? Okay. Yeah. Rosenberg would be your pessimistic uh, naturalist as well as like a Sartre. But Flanagan would be in the other uh, camp. He's an optimistic naturalist. Uh, Alec, uh, I'm sorry, Eric Weilenberg would be another optimistic naturalist that okay. thinks you can have meaning in a godless world. Mm-hmm. So for Flanagan, <clears throat> just to summarize his view, um, the reason why I call it enchanted naturalism is it, it is a naturalism. Mm-hmm. So it, the story ends the same as all the other stories with your life. The story's over. The universe dies. You die. Everything dies and it's gone. But it's an enchanted naturalism in that he uh, affirms a deep beauty, mystery and value in the world. Hmm. Okay? And so it's way better. You yeah. know, if this if this is the tr- true picture of the world, maybe there's going to be a better fit, you know, because for sure there's no fit in the first two. Yeah, this is your best chance in a godless world to get a fit between longing and world or desire and world, and that's the, that's the third view. Okay, okay, we did it. We got through those. Those are good. Yeah. Uh, okay, so now we got an enchanted supernaturalism, um, and and I think we'll we'll probably flesh this out a little bit more. Um, can you go through like like purpose, value, significance makes sense? Can you go through how uh, uh, enchanted supernaturalism would answer these? These the yeah. set the meaning set. Okay, yeah, and I'm going to turn. I've got my notes here too, so I'm going to make sure I kind of get it right, or at least from what I said. Yeah. yeah. Um, so on, on enchanted uh, supernaturalism. So uh, the world is enchanted. So you have deep meaning, deep meaning, deep beauty, deep value, deep significance. But yeah, but it's not a godless world. Mm-hmm. God exists. Now it, it's a, it is important to note at least how I'm going to flesh it out in the chapter that there are. Um, there's different versions of enchanted supernaturalism, right? Yeah. Theism, Christian theism, the Christian story is just one version of enchanted naturalism. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's the one I'm most interested in because it's the one I think is true. Yeah. Um, 
But on, and, and then so the, the, the journey mate there is Pascal. He's got this great quote in the Ponces about, you know, basically there's, there's this, this infinite hole that only an infinite being can satisfy, and that being is God and, and things like that. So you probably you even pronounced it uh, Ponces, man. You did a great job. Yeah, there. Did, did I get it? Yeah, I think so. I don't <laughs> well, pronounce wait, it right. So. Parker's Ponces. So there you go. <laughs> so right. We had to invite some Pascal, of course. Yeah, I love that. Meaning. That's right. Yeah. And so when you go back to the existential set, and you ask the question, what is the fit between desire and world on enchanted supernaturalism? It would go, and, and specifically one version of that Christianity. Here's what I would say just briefly yeah. in terms of purpose, you have, you, you get, you get purpose in life because you're created by God for perfect happiness. Mm-hmm. And that would be some, something like <laughs> eternal permanent union with God. That is what we're created for. That's perfect happiness on this Christian story. Uh, In terms of value, well, our lives are valuable um, because God creates us with great dignity and worth, especially humans. We're created in the image of God, and we have great dignity because of that. Moreover, uh, Flanagan spends a lot of time talking about the human longings for goodness, truth, and beauty. And in Enchanted Supernaturalism, the Christian version, you don't just get goodness, truth, and beauty. You get them hooked objectively, because for Flanagan, he, I think at best he gets a kind of cultural relativistic okay. uh, goodness, truth, and beauty. You get objective beauty, and you get the source of goodness, truth, and beauty itself, which is Christ. Hmm. Um, so you get value. You get significance. Your life matters. It matters to God. Uh, it matters to others. And you will leave, your, leave a trace in this world, because guess what? You live forever, so that's hmm. cool. Yeah. Um, in terms of making sense, uh, here's one of the advantages that enchanted supernaturalism has over enchanted naturalism. Um, enchanted naturalism, if you're going to make sense at all, you can only make it from the what, what we would call, to use the learned, um, subspecie humanitatus, you know, okay. under, from the perspective of humans. Um, but if enchanted supernaturalism is true, you get to make sense of things from the widest possible perspective. Yeah. Of species eternitatis from the species from the from the viewpoint of eternity. So you get uh, the widest possible uh, scope to make sense of things. Um, you know, there is an overarching story and that overarching story is a story of love. Right? Mm, mm. Uh, and then in terms of uh, identity, we get to discover our true name. Um, you know, uh, and, and actually we discover that we don't name ourselves. Like I love just to speak biblically for a minute, you know, there's, um, Christians often talk about the great commission, which is, uh, at the end of Matthew, where Jesus says, you know, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the father, son, and Holy spirit. What's so interesting there, baptism is a naming event, right? Mm -hmm. Where we're, and so what we learn is that we can't name ourselves, that we must be named by another. Yeah. And so on the Christian story, you discover your true name. And as it turns out, for those who believe, it's beloved. That's mm. your name. Uh, and then finally, this longing for transcendence, well, you get it all, right? You get you get God, you get after you get you get eternity, you get a story greater than yourself, and so on. So I would say you get perfect hand and glove, mm. key and lock kind of fit between the existential set and the Christian story. Of course. We have to ask the question, well, is it the true story of the world? But hey, of all the stories, this is the one that fits the best. And and even even compared to other uh, uh, enchanted supernaturalisms, this is the one that rises I, to the top. That's right. Yeah, that, that's where that's where I would want to go. Yeah. Okay, dude. Um, can I ask you which which one of these um, which one of the set like most touches you? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think the identity question, dude. No, 
Same. I was just thinking yeah. that. Like, it yeah, almost makes me want to tear up a little bit, man. I'm not going to cry in this uh, podcast. But <laughs> when you talk about like true name and identity, I don't know if it's the way we're wired. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure other people will see other ones like significance or making sense. I want to say it's making sense because I want to be a philosopher and theologian. But it's really the true name. Like, he knows me. He's planned yeah. this, right? I'm part of a story. I belong somewhere. And, and he knows me. He knows me better than me. And he still loves me, which is bonkers, you know? Because yeah. I know a little bit about me and I don't like me that much, but yeah. he knows everything and still, yeah, that, that identity one is huge. Why, why do you think for you, man? Why? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, all of them, you know, I think are right. deep belongings of the heart, but um, maybe why does that one jump out to me too? Um, for me, it's, uh, so I read this book a number of years ago. I interacted with it in my book, Cultural Apologetics, but it was by, a book by Frederick Buchner mm-hmm. called To Tell the Truth. And it was actually a book ri- written for preachers. Buchner's a great mm-hmm writer, but um, he wrote this book for pastors. And the subtitle of the book will give it all away, though. The Gospel is Tragedy, Comedy, and Fairy Story. Hmm. And it's a book that you can read in one city, and it's a small book. But in there, he just unpacks the gospel in a way that is just rich. And what he says about each of those plot lines of the gospel story, you know, so man's tragedy is sin, the fact that we have um, rebelled against this God who created us and loves us. The d- comedy is like the unforeseen, like high comedy. It's the unexpected, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And so so God, the divine comedy, God's response to man's tragedy was the incarnation. Mm-hmm. And then the, the, the tragedy to, to God's incarnation was the cross. But then the divine comedy, again, was the resurrection, right? Yeah. And then the fairy story ending, as Buchner describes it, this is why it comes back to identity. He says, the fairy story, you know, fairy stories never end. So it's the happy ending, but it's more like the sudden turn, right? That goes yeah. on forever and ever and ever. Happily and this ever is the, after, right? Yeah. yeah, it's like the happily ever after, the deep longing of the human heart. But this is how Buchner describes that fairy story ending, even though it's a never ending thing. He says, you know, I wish I had the quote in front of me, um, but he basically says, you know, this is the time when all people will be known by their true name. And there's just something about that that resonates, you know, when we discover this is who you are. Because there's this quest in the modern age. This yeah. is called the quest for authenticity. Mm-hmm. You know, you probably heard this phrase. It's like the Disney phrase, you know, be true to yourself or yeah. follow your own heart. Right. We're all in this quest for authenticity. But the question is, well, who gets to name us? Right. And, and, and we can't name ourselves, right? We don't even understand ourselves. And oh. That's why I love in like First John 3, 12, 20, or yeah, 20, I think it says that God is greater than our hearts. Like, yeah. I don't even understand myself, but God understands us. Yeah. Um, and so that's that idea of, of naming us. Um, yeah. And so that's, well, check out that book and read yeah. that. Read Buchner's explanation. That's what sort of did it for me, I think. That sounds awesome, man. Well, I think, so, so you, you mentioned how we can't name ourselves. Um, and I think I've, I think I've come to grips with that. Uh, I don't think that's a temptation for me anymore, but wanting others to name me uh, yeah. with this podcast, man, I want people to like it. Like, do I, am I crazy? Am I onto something? Do you think I'm a good thinker? Like mm-hmm. trying to get my name from the crowd yeah. is so deadly okay. too, because when it goes yeah. well, that's great. But we have the crowd turns on everyone, man. Like it just sure. does. And it's not even just a characteristic of like call out culture or cancellation. It's always happened. The crowds always turned on people. We saw it with Jesus. And that's another temptation. That's what I'm more tempted to today yeah. is to find my identity in the crowd and just realizing yeah, you know, that's going to happen. And yeah. this was the tragedy of the Joker movie to go back to where we started. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, is that Arthur Fleck discovered that he can't name himself. Mm. So who named him? You know, right after he killed the three businessmen yeah. that represented everything that's wrong with the universe, who named him? Well, it was the citizens of Gotham City. Yeah. Who named him. 
Um, and so what happens though is in the end, that's not that is that is who he became, but that isn't his true name, mm-hmm. uh, the way I would want to say it. Right. Um, and so the story is one of tragedy only. Yeah. Right? It is tragedy all the way down. But notice the gospel story doesn't deny that tragedy is part of the story. Yeah. It is part of the world right now, tragedy. Yeah. And of course, the nice nihilism would say, wait a minute, let's turn all that tragedy into comedy. You know, maybe that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing, you know, that's so interesting about that, and, and especially Rosenberg and his prescription that we could just take Prozac if we don't enjoy ourselves, right. is that, um, you know, theologians, philosophers uh, have noted that um, meaning and, per- and pleasure are tightly connected. And if you dis- if you strip the meaning out of yeah. pleasure, it ceases to become pleasurable. Yeah. And so what happens is that it's all comedy all the way down, that hope of nice nihilism. In the end, it's tragedy, too. Yeah. And enchanted naturalism, it's no different, right? We look for these things that we're going to find some subjective meaning in. But as it turns out, given the cosmic end of our lives and of yeah. the universe, that cosmic end, the end of that story, infects the whole story and makes it all futile. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so we can't name ourselves. And mm-hmm. if we do, it's gonna be it's gonna be tragic. But the gospel admits the tragedy of this moral world we find ourselves in, but yet there is genuine comedy and there's this unexpected turn. That's the happy ending we all long for. It's just unending. I mean, that's huge. I I think that just initially I'm thinking of uh, times I've heard like porn stars talk about their work or whatever, right. And they, you you take the meaning out of the pleasure and you push that pleasure button again and again. And it's, you you blew it. Yeah. And we do this with everything. When we Americans, we know this really well, you know, let's get rid of all, the meaning and just keep hitting that pleasure button on whatever it is. Uh, and I've done this with so many things and just wrecked it. I did this with fishing. I got all obsessed with fishing, man. And I would be out till 3am and took the meaning out of it. But um, shoot, I was going to go somewhere else, but okay. So meaning I've totally, I've totally lost it, but uh, dude, where was I going? I don't know. Um, It'll come back. I can say something to just yeah, yeah. With you though for a minute. Um, yeah. I mean, like think of a, uh... I, it, think of a, a print versus an original painting. You know, this okay. is like an example. Like, say you think you have a, a Picasso. Somehow you discover a Picasso yeah. in your attic, mm-hmm. some old house you buy. Oh, it's an original Picasso. I mean, you would take great joy in that picture. Although, you know, maybe Picasso doesn't really do it to you. But because of the meaning and the context and the, the artist behind that, you, you can take pleasure in that as beautiful. Yeah. right? Yeah. But the minute you find out that it's a forgery... Right. It, it, it loses it. It's divest of meaning and it loses its pleasure. Yeah. And that's the idea. That's the worry. That's I, I, I have some worries for enchanted naturalism, but that's I'm sorry. That's nice nihilism. That, that's the worry. It just yeah. it's going to drain, you know, this desire to turn all everything into comedy. Well, that would be nice. You know, self-reporting, of course, if there, there was nothing, of course, it'd be great if all that was pleasure to be had. Yeah. But as it turns out, it can't be sustained because you yeah. take the meaning, you take the pleasure. So anyway, that's a little more behind why that. That's so helpful. I, I, uh, I have, find it? yeah, I did find it, but you brought up something else. I'm going to grab it real quick. <laughs> so, so dude, you made me think of this. I, I love, uh, do androids dream of electric sheep? Yes. You, you read this for your book. Is that right? I did. It made its way yeah. into the book. That's right. That's right. Dude, I can't wait. This is one of my favorite books ever. And I've read it a few times now, but I wanted the second printing. I wanted this picture uh, because it's it's an android and there's sheep over there. It's half android, half human. And it's like this this classic like 60s, late 60s kind of art. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm looking to get it tattooed next month. Uh, I love it, man. So I, I found the original. And there's something about having, I keep it in plastic, right? I found it and I, I wanted to authenticate mm. it because if it was fake, it wouldn't do it. 
it's still the same picture, but it just wouldn't quite do it. Some meaning there. Yeah. 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 But what I, what I was, what I lost my track earlier, my train of thought, um, this idea that you, you talked about the, I forgot his name already, but the, the guy who writes for preachers, um, and he, he talked about, there is tragedy, right? I, I've seen this nice, uh, nihilism sneak into our Christianity as well. And it's happened to me because we overplay Tolkien's, uh, you catastrophe, right? The, the good catastrophe. I love that. I use it in most of my papers if I can. But if you overplay that and say, we live in a d- divine comedy only, right. then you don't recognize the actual tragedy of the cross. Like it was horrible. It was, I was, Mike Ray was just on yesterday and he was like, we can't, even if you want to use a greater good, you don't say that that was good. Like, even if you're using like a Felix Culp or something, dude, that was evil. That was genuine evil. And I think that's so important. You brought that up that we don't want to just, God's got it. We live in a divine comedy. Dude, yes, but it's still it's still like fine, like mm-hmm. rough and tumble. It's still real tragedy happening, even though it's a divine yeah. comedy. Yeah, and, and you know, it's like evil. Like you know, talk a lot about the problem of evil. I'm sure on your show, or I yeah. teach it all the time. But um, I mean, evil, evil per se is still evil. It's bad. It's always yeah. bad. right. You know, so you have to distinguish between evil itself and like. For example, in the debate, uh, God's morally justified reason for allowing it, right? Yeah. Those are two different things. And, and it's the same way with tra- um, like the cross. I mean, there is a, that is a beautiful thing, but it was a tragedy as well. And so to me, it's just like um, it, 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 it has the, the ring of truth to it, right? You want a story that's alive and then understands you. Well, if you just had a story that was all comedy, that's not true to the way the world is. It's yeah. not the way the world is. Right. But if you had a story that was all tragedy, that's not true to the way the world is either. Um, and yet we also have these deep longings. Go back to those those competing intuitions. We have this deep longing for, like, as um, – as Tolkien puts, puts it, since you mentioned Tolkien in his essay on fairy story, you know, he says we all of us long within the human heart for, you know, a magical world uh, where love is eternal and death is cheated and there's a happy ending and victory is snatched out of the hands of defeat. Mm-hmm. You know, and then he says, but the intelligentsia tell us that these things can't happen. But yet we all long for them and we long for that fairy story ending. And so we have a story that actually the Christian story, as it turns out, perfectly matches these deep longings of the human heart. Um, in a way that feels so. There's a feel, a fit yeah. uh, that feels more true to life than some any of the others. Yeah, man, I love that. I love, I love uh, the the narrative aspect. I think like this can be a, a pedagogical tool for thinking through life, and it's like we live in a story. I think we genuinely actually do live in a story. That's kind of the authorial uh, model that I've, I've thought through. God yeah. speaks the universe into beginning, just like an author's, you know. Mm-hmm. start writing a, a novel and then that universe comes into being. And so I think this is actually the way the world is, which is so sick, but uh, I just wanted to follow. We said so many great things and I kind of hesitate to end on this note. Cause it's not as positive or whatever, but just thinking through you're you're a metaphysician. Um, what type of philosophy is this work that you're working on? And, and meaning first, let's go with meaning. What, what, where does that fall? Where does meaning fall in the branches of philosophy? And then, yeah, I, that's a great question, Parker. I don't know. Like um, in, in many ways, uh, you know, I said earlier that it's that the question of finding our place in the universe is, is firstly a question about cosmology or metaphysics. Right. So I do think it, it is metaphysics. Okay. But I mean, even if you think of the sense making right. um, idea, that's I mean, that's in the philosophy of language. And of course, mm-hmm. you can you can um, there's things in the philosophy of language that are relevant because we know um, in philosophy of language, we understand the idea of linguistic meaning and the search for linguistic meaning. Like you might say a sentence that's gibberish, 
Yeah. And you might say, well, that means nothing to us. So we understand the difference between linguistic entities that have sense and those that don't. That's like semantics. And, Is that the study of semantics? Yeah, yeah semantics. Okay. So that, that would be um, in, in philosophy of language. But then we could say, but we also are aware of like events that have meaning. So now we're not quite in philosophy of language, but we're finding meaning like, you know, that that game meant a lot to me or that pain, yeah. you know, that event may, meant a lot for me. So now we're finding meaning in, in events. And why not ask about meaning to the world? And that's that's getting into metaphysics and philosophy of religion. Here's what I love about metaphysics. This is the bottom line. Yeah. Metaphysics, all the best questions are in <laughs> metaphysics because they always end up being theological questions, right? Yeah. At the yeah, end yeah. of the day. So I'm just going to carve out this question as metaphysics since that's the field I enjoy. But it's it's broader than that. I love that. I love that. I've, I've been uh, – I read uh, this book by Jonathan Pennington, and he's going to come on. It's called uh, Jesus the Great Philosopher. Yep. And uh, it, it got me into more classical philosophy and stuff. And I I think Jesus was a philosopher, man. I know a lot of people are like, no, you, you're, you're ballooning it up. I think he genuinely was. The early church seemed to think that he was. Um, but it, it's like this classical idea of this – the classical view of philosophy. And we talked about this on our first episode. So if the listeners want to go back and listen to that, it seems like that's kind of what you're doing here. And that's why I don't want to say it's like, it's like your popular work. It's like, this is just, it's real stuff. Your, it's your classical mm-hmm. philosophy work. That's right. Because this is what people cared about. Hey, come follow this tradition of philosophy to make sense of the world, become mm-hmm. an Epicurean, become a Stoic, become a follower of the way, become a Christian, right. To, to make sense of reality. Yeah. And then that is one of the, as you're, probably well aware and becoming more aware now that you're learning about analytic and continental philosophy and the way the academy runs now. I mean, there is a charge that, so I'm an analytic philosopher, right? Mm -hmm. I love precision. uh, I I care about those things and and words and concepts and metaphysics and contemporary logic and all that. Um, But as you're, you know, even Jonathan's book, um, you know, Jesus, the great philosopher, um, you know, there, there's an ancient stream of philosophy, as many people even like to play, don't say, no, philosophy is, a, philosophy is about a way of life. Yeah. And that has no connection to the way that we see philosophy in the academy. And so, yeah, you're right. I'm tapping into that stream. And so in some ways, like even in, in Jonathan's book, where he talks about the main, the four main categories of epistemology and metaphysics and, and ethics, and then like, uh, I think it was a politi- political politics. Stuff. Yeah. politics. yeah, I mean, th- so like the ancient, the primary question wasn't, wasn't like what's the metaphysics of space and time and whether you can perdure or ender, yeah. you know, through time. Uh, but it was like, you know, what kind of person ought I be, right? And how do how should I live, as they say? Yeah. Um, and of course, we've lost all that. So yeah, it's it's tapping into that more ancient way. But yeah. again, I mean, as followers of the way, followers of Jesus, if Jesus is the great philosopher, um, these are questions of existential import that we yeah. care about. Yeah. Well, dude, this is why I wanted to end on this because I think that you do this really well. And I, and I want to put you up as, as someone to follow because uh, I don't, I don't want to see just a return to that ancient philosophy. We still need to know about perdurantism. Like we still need to know about metaphysics. And if we're living uh, in a, in a computer simulation, we need to be able to ask and answer these questions as Christian philosophers. We should do the, the best job. I say we, but like you guys should do the best job at this. You too, Parker. Yes. Oh, thanks man. But, but, but also we need to get back to the big stuff too. So that's why I'm so excited about your book. Um, and I, I can't recommend it enough just from the, the stuff that I've seen of it. Uh, because you do this really, really well of saying, I'm a metaphysician by trade. Let's get into that stuff. If you want to talk about substance, let's get in. But also here's this grander picture. And it's actually the Christian picture. So come follow me as I follow Christ. I love that. Um, thanks. Yeah, man. So thanks for doing such a good, good job and kind of carving the way for the rest of us. Uh, 
can I ask you, like, when is when is this book coming out? Is that a, a... no? Yeah, yeah, of course. It, it's coming out with Brazos, Brazos mm-hmm. Press, um, and it's so I, I'm in the midst of writing it. It's due to the press, I think, at the end of the summer this year, okay. 2021, like September 1st, um, and then usually. Uh, books take six to eight months, nine months to come out. So it'll probably come out fall 2022. So yeah, um, right now, 11 stones is the t- tentative title and I'm seven out of 12 chapters in. Nice, so man. Going. I love it. Well, so all you, all you guys out there give, uh, give Brazos a hard time and maybe they'll get, they'll get on work. Uh, first, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. After he's done. Well, dude, this has been so great. Thanks so much for coming on. I can't wait till you come on again. I'd love to do another chapter maybe with you, uh, in, in the near future or, or whatever you're interested in at the time. This has been huge. Thanks for all the, the help with me, dude, and, and helping me, uh, long for, uh, for philosophy more, but, but ultimately long for Christ, man. You're, you're a great example. So I appreciate yeah, you. Perfect. Yeah. That's huge. It, it's so crazy still like for listeners. It's Paul Gould, man. Like this, this is my friend now, but I have his books out here. It's so crazy that, that we're friends. I love it. Um, we could talk about this more and uh, Lord willing someday we're going to someday soon, but uh, for now it's going to have to do it. This has been Parker's Pensies and as always all glory to God.